You're listening to For What It's Worth Podcast, and I'm your host, Benjamin Carenza. This is episode two and part two of a short series on the next Portland police chief. And in this part of the series, we speak with Gregory McKelvey of Portland Resistance. Yeah, can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you great. Um, so, Greg, why don't you start off by introducing yourself and uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. So, my name is Greg McKelvey, and I am one of the founders and of Portland's Resistance, and I currently sit on the organizing committee of Portland's Resistance, which is a seven-person board, majority women of color, um, that does the, like, daily operations of, of Portland's uh, resistance. Excellent. So yesterday there was big news in Portland. Um, what was your reaction to the announcement that the Marshman didn't make the cut? Um, well, I'm excited that Mike Marshman is not a police chief anymore. Um, it's hard to be entirely optimistic given Portland's uh, recent history with police chiefs and really our historical um, discrepancies in policing with people of color in the houseless community. Um, so uh, I'm encouraged that it's not Mike Marshman. I also think that it's inspiring to have a woman of color in that position. Um, but the process was so secretive and messed up that really – um, we have a police chief coming in that the community knows really nothing about or on her positions. So um, Portland Resistance was actually um, pivotal in getting some information about this process that was so secretive released to the public. Is that correct? Yeah, so we did a – so we found out that there was going to be a secret panel of people that would be interviewing the final six candidates, um, which was odd because Ted Wheeler had promised when we went down to the final candidates that he would like um, more of a public process, but we didn't have that. So we did a public records request um, asking who the final six candidates were, who um, was on this panel that was interviewing and asking questions to narrow down um, the options for police chief, and also how the city was using that input, how the people were selected, um, really to know more about the process. And also there was a community input survey that happened online, so we wanted to know what the responses to that survey were and how they used those responses um, in in crafting uh, the the – um, questions in the criteria for a new police chief. The problem is that we didn't receive, you know, we probably got half of what we asked for. So we didn't get all those final six candidates' names because um, because it's a HR thing, a human resources thing, so they have a way to get around public um, records requests. And some of those people did not want their names disclosed, obviously because they don't want their new job to know that they're, or their old job to know that they're looking for a new job. But we did end up getting um, the names of the panelists that were interviewing for the police chief, which was um, great. And so we immediately put that out. Um, and, and gave it to the press. And then we also um, got the responses from the community that happened on this community input survey of what people were responding of how what they wanted in a police chief. And it was discouraging to see that less than 1,000 people weighed in 
Um, and there was only about 20 um, black people that weighed into that survey. So I think that speaks to how little the community um, was involved in this process and how little outreach that the mayor's office did and the city did in, in trying to get people to be involved in this process. Do you think it was a barrier to uh, participation in the survey that the mayor put out, um, that it was actually behind a login system so people actually had to register for the city's website to participate in the survey um, where in yes. the past we've seen um, you know for instance uh, for feedback on directives they don't actually have to register to give that did that seem kind of so what they, seem like a barrier yeah so what they should have had was a community forum and we shouldn't have had a secret panel but rather the community able to come ask these finalist questions um, so it's uh, prohibitive in the fact that the people that are most affected by a police chief or that have um, the, historically the worst relationships with police also happen to be the people that have the least access to um, the internet and also to fill out this survey you have to put an address in so if you're a houseless individual that's already over policed how do you you know you have less of an opportunity to be on the internet as a rich white man uh, per se and you also have um, there's already barriers in that you don't know what email address to put on there you might not have one you don't know what address to put on there because you might not have one you don't know what phone number to put on there because you might not have one and so we're barring the people that are most affected by over policing from really weighing into this and also if you are a houseless person there was no posters or anything to, for people to know that they could weigh in so the only people that know that they can weigh in are basically um, people that are checking the city website and stuff our media was not covering this so it, it it's really discouraging it was also discouraging the lack of media coverage in this because it was really um, Maxine Bernstein and uh, from the Oregonian and Doug Brown from the Portland Mercury were some of the only two people writing about this and instead uh, and and really this is probably the most important hire that we have ideally this police chief will be around much longer than Ted Wheeler so they should be covering this as if they cover a mayor's race. And why, when there are 100 journalists in town, does it take Portland Resistance doing a public records request to get this vital information? There's stories on local news every single night about cats and graffiti or um, the, the Portland's oldest person or a birthday party gone wrong or, like, the weather and stuff. But this is the kind of stuff that really affects people. Right. Um, so let's go back to Daniel Outlaw. What would you like to see Danielle Outlaw do within her first 90 days as police chief of Portland? So the, this is something that I haven't given a lot of thought, but there's some things that come to mind off the top of my head. One, you should purge the people that have um, a ton of complaints on them, people that, uh, and you should set up a system where you have an open door policy where people can basically be whistleblowers and talk about and report their officers in a confidential way that they work with that they know are abusive or um, have troubling tendencies. We need to get rid of Mark Cougar, the, the Nazi cop, and, you know, the police union will probably fight on these things, but, um, but, you know, it's worth having that fight. So hopefully she comes in and is willing to stand up to the police union and Daryl Turner. I also hope, you know, Portland's Resistance is going to put together a community forum that, you know, we'll invite her to and, and 
it won't happen if she doesn't come because she would be the subject. And so hopefully we can find a date that works for her so that people can come and talk about what they want and a police chief, what they need. She can get to know the people of Portland and the people of Portland can ask questions that they should have been able to ask questions already in the interview process. So hopefully she, she um, agrees to do that. Um, and then, you know, we need to know Part of the problem about Mike Munson and the way he was policing protests is we didn't know what the standard was because one day they might show up automatically and shut down a protest. Another day they might wait and shut down a protest and say you crossed a certain line, but nobody ever knew what that line was. So if we could at least know what is going to trigger the police to act violent at protests would help people like my group um, try and keep people safe so we can do what we can to to, to, to warn people that if this line is crossed, this is when the police are going to be attacking. Because under Mike Marshman, it seemed completely arbitrary and we had no idea when that was going to happen. We also need to know what her position is going to be on enforcing low-level offenses um, because the whole city wants to be a sanctuary city, but as we continue to arrest people of color at the disproportionate rates, especially for minor crimes, how do you get deported under the Trump administration is by being undocumented and then being arrested for something. So as long as we're um, disproportionately arresting people of color, we're not really a sanctuary city because we're still throwing people into the hands of ICE. So we need to know her position on that. And then lastly, we need to know the position on how she's going to policing houseless issues. Um, is she going to continue the, the troubling way that we've been doing it now where it's basically illegal to be houseless in Portland? Or are we going to allow people to do the things that they need to do to survive out in the streets? You make some good points there. Um, I'd like to point out for our listeners, um, Portland Mercury actually uh, just last year um, published a survey that was done within the Portland Police Bureau um, where a majority of respondents actually reported that they felt like um, some of their fellow officers who were engaging in misconduct weren't held accountable. So they're just sticking around. They're not actually ever being um, disciplined or, or even removed from the Bureau. Um, there's, they're allowed to continue to act with impunity and, and engage in this misconduct, um, as we've seen um, over the years. Another and that has to do with how powerful our police union is, how um, pro-police um, the new police union contract is, and also the thin blue line that people talk about where police officers are often unwilling to talk bad about any other police officer. Right. Um, another, another important thing you pointed out was the... Um, uh, the arbitrary nature um, around crowd control, um, inconsistency in how, what level of force is used, um, how militarized the response is, how large the response is, whether they bring in partner agencies. Um, a good example of this was just this last weekend. Um, on uh, Over the weekend, there was a protest at the waterfront. Um, lately, um, over the last two protests, it seems Portland police has actually had almost no presence. Um, uh, looking at the mainstream media, um, there was reports that basically brawls were breaking out and police were just watching or, or you know, there'd be one or two officers, but, but mostly none of the um, militarized response you'd see um, with some of the larger protests in the last year. Now, now, something that I've been wondering is, is that due to a smaller presence of people of color? Because these protests are now starting to turn out to be um, predominantly uh, white anti-fascist activists. Um, where yeah. people of color seem to have been shifting their um, energy towards different um, tactics and um, efforts. Um, Portland Resistance, as an example, 
uh, doesn't do marches too much anymore. Uh, some of your members participate in different events, um, but mostly are not, you know, you're not, we're not seeing that larger presence of people of color um, at rallies that we've seen in the past. And as a result, we're seeing um, less militarized response. At least that's been the, my impression over the last two rallies that have happened where there's been almost no police. Sure. I think that there's, as protests have become, you know, it's kind of like a chicken or the egg, because as protests have become more violent, we know that police are more susceptible to be hurting people of color. People of color have been stopping going to these protests because they know that they're in danger for going, especially when you have a mixture of the police and these fascists that are both very dangerous for people of color to be around. Um, So I don't know if it's a result you know, I don't know which came first, if it was them being violent that got the cops away or them not going that uh, got the cops away. But I also think that there's probably more factors going into it. Um, I'm worried. Uh, so this could be a new turn, and this is how they're just going to start policing protests. Um, but, you know, it could be Mike Marshman on his way out or any police officer saying, you know what? You don't want cops here? Fine. We're going to do nothing. And they just are going to, and they're playing this dangerous game with people's lives to where eventually someone gets seriously hurt. And then that becomes the pretense and the pretext for, um, for even more of a violent crackdown. So if they continue doing this, where they're like, we're not showing up at all, and somebody gets seriously hospitalized or, um, you know, uh, God forbid, even killed, then... Um, then what is the response to protest going to be? And I think that that might be what they're gearing towards. They don't care if they have to lose one person so that they can go out and and play their warrior games um, uh, and use one injury or one death to be the reason for that. So that's what I'm worried about. I think that there's a, there's a, somewhere there's a, a happy medium in between no policing and bad policing. And uh, hopefully, you know, we would like to see where we reform the police department to be um, an institution in which they actually do protect people's First Amendment rights rather than trample on them. So I think that um, it's kind of dangerous to say that we don't want police to be policing fascists um, because we don't want the police there and we can do it ourselves because I was there two days ago and those people are incredibly violent and scary and when you have women and children there that are um, susceptible to violence from them I think that there's a happy medium somewhere between no policing and bad policing. So what are your thoughts on um, the collusion with uh, Portland police and federal law enforcement? Portland's had kind of this on and off relationship with uh, federal law enforcement in the past for years there was a an absence of Portland police officers participating in the Joint Terrorism Task Force. Then just a few yep. years uh, back, they rejoined. And now after the elections, we've seen um, the Department of Homeland Security talking about how regular run-of-the-mill activists are engaging in domestic terrorism. Um, we've seen certain states like New Jersey Department of Homeland Security labeling uh, anti-fascists as terrorists. Um, so what are your thoughts on the collusion that's been happening lately? Um, an example would be June 4th, which was dubbed Operation Columbia Crest uh, by federal law enforcement that was cooperating with the Portland police. I think that it's disgusting. I think that we should have much more reporting from our local media on this because a majority of the city wants to be a sanctuary city. 
So how much of a sanctuary city are we if we're working with Donald Trump's administration to dismantle our police accountability or to ramp up our, our surveillance system? So we're still a part of the Joint Terrorism Task Force, which works with the federal government. Now, who does Donald Trump consider to be a terrorist? Um, it's not just actual terrorists, but rather, um, you know, it's racist in that Muslims will be on there because of their name or because of their beliefs are considered terrorists. And now um, just protesters and resistors are basically um, considered terrorists by Donald Trump's administration. So um, I think that it, it's it's difficult because I don't trust the Portland police to be doing this stuff on their own, and I don't trust them to be working with Donald Trump's administration. But, um, you know, I made the argument that if Donald Trump was mayor of Portland um, on certain issues such as policing, the policing of protests, um, police accountability, we would not really see much of a difference. So let me ask you this. Um, just a couple months back when the – Department of Homeland Security did put out an advisory calling local activists uh, saying that they were engaging in domestic um, terrorism. Uh, Ted Wheeler made a public comment where he said that he didn't agree with that. Um, since you've seen this collusion that's happened on June 4th with Portland police and federal law enforcement, do you believe what he said in that statement that he, he doesn't believe that uh, local activists are terrorists or do you think he really does? I don't know if he believes it or not, but he obviously doesn't care if the result is the same as if they were. So um, Ted Wheeler basically does this, and I, and I blame um, the the fact that much of our city is not involved or um, or informed on local politics as well as our media is not covered in as well as they should be. But Ted Wheeler basically has gone his entire term and beforehand of saying one thing, doing another, and then uh, and then rightfully assuming that everybody is going to be so misinformed that they're only going to listen to what he said and rather than look at what he did. So we can act like we're a sanctuary city, but then work with Donald Trump's administration. And on, the only thing people know is what Ted Wheeler has said and no reporting is happening about what Ted Wheeler has actually done. So, you know, um, it, unless you're the people most affected by the policies of Ted Wheeler, all you see is the rhetoric and it looks great. Um, so, you know, we have a mayor that ran on police accountability and has done the exact opposite of everything that he said, who ran on transparency and has done the exact opposite, who ran on fixing the housing crisis and has instead ramped up the houseless sweeps. And, and so it's, it's discouraging, but I think you can only try and pull one over on the community for so long before people start to look around and say, hey, there's no results, regardless of what the media is reporting. And just one final question for you. Um, do you think that activists will give this new police chief a chance, um, or do you think the scrutiny um, that we've seen towards Portland police will continue um, as, as soon as this new administration starts? Well, the problem with having a new police chief is we still have the same politicians controlling the police chief. We still have the same police officers, and we still have the same district attorney, and we still have the same police union. So this is only one cog in a machine that works to uh, oppress people. And so you can't, even if we were fixing that one little piece, the whole institution is still broken. And so I think that... Um, 
uh, it's it would be best to assume that she's going to do a better job than Mike Marshman. But even, you know, it doesn't matter if we had Chris Tucker or Jackie Chan or Steven Seagal as our police chief. It's not going to um, – we could have the best police chief in the world, and um, the whole system is still going to be broken. So um, it's one small step, um, and it's one small battle, but there's still a big war ahead of us. Thank you so much for your time this evening, uh, Greg. Of course, anytime. Thank you.